everybody, I'd like you to be praying for Easter. Be praying for the people that you're supposed to invite for our community. We want not just our church. We want all of the churches in the Estes Valley who preach the gospel, who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, who believe that Jesus is the, the way of salvation. We want all those churches to be packed out, right? So we need to be, God be praying, uh, God be, be working in the hearts and lives of our community. So please, everybody, be praying for that. Now, I know that some people have a really a gift of prayer, right? That is what you do. It's how God made you to do that. That's, like, that's the muscle in, in the body of Christ that you are. You're a prayer person. If that is you, um, I'm, I would like to have your name. If you're willing to, every day, uh, I put together a small little thing that we're going to strategically pray for our community. And if you want to join me in, in that, this is what I would like you to do. Write your name down on, on your connection card and just say prayer, right, for, and uh, make sure I have your email address, and then every morning you're going to get an item that I would ask you to be praying for that day and up until Easter. So if that's what, something you'd like to do, just write that down. Also, uh, not everybody is that muscle. We have other people have different muscles, and one of those is uh, making a place look beautiful. And I want you to notice, but uh, when you walked in this morning and there was a nice basket with some flowers and things by the entry, we're, you know, we're disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus, but we're also a family of faith, right? And as people uh, come to us, they're coming into our home. We want to make our house look nice. We really do. And uh, Laura Miller called me up and said, hey, there's that ugly basket. We always hand out these things. Can I make that look nicer? I said, absolutely. And then she not even looking nice. It looks really nice. Right? That's what we're looking for. Um, if you would like to help us make this space you know, really nice for our guests that are coming on Easter, what I'd like you to do is write your name down, say decorations or decor. We're going to put a little team together and make sure I have your phone number and stuff like that so we can, and your email so we can get you guys together. And so that way, um, after, next week, you can get here and, and spruce up the, the space, which would be awesome. Now, if you have a little more muscle or you like being outside, we also have some work on the outside that needs to be done, right, to make it look nice. And, and there are a few things that, uh, you know, like especially in that back door, we have a few things that's kind of lying about that the wind has distributed uh, and, and stuff like this. If you would like to help with that, uh, you can just write grounds or B&G, building and grounds. If you'd like to help us make this space, prepare for the guests that God is going to bring into our home. Uh, and I'll tell you that as a staff, we are praying that God will bring 300 people. Why 300? Because as I counted up the parking spaces, right, and I did that little mathematical formula, 300 is the maximum that we can bring into our building through both of our services. And I figure, why not, Lord? So if you would join me in that, let's pray for 300. That's what we're preparing for. Um, and so if you would help uh, with that, just write down B&G. And we are going to, as a family, be able to invite guests into our home and to show them godly hospitality and, and Christ's love and one of the most happiest days of the year. So there you go. All right. Well, let's get to our series on First John. Uh, if you haven't, it's a, you missed the first two and we're, we're kind of three into it, but this is, a, we're going to really be talking about the scripture today um, as far as getting into the things. The first two messages in the first one hit the first four verses, which are really crucial. So if you missed that, go to our website, funchurch.com, um, opportunity to listen to that first message. Um, and really, it talks about being real, that our faith is based upon reality. And really, nothing else in, this, in the book or our faith makes sense unless Jesus really is who he claimed to be, right? So read the first four verses in the Bible of that, obviously, and there's that verse for you. Then last week, we talked about the five things that John said that he, why he, he wrote the book. Why did God, why did the Holy Spirit prompt John to write this, this letter to the churches? And there were five things specifically that John said that he might do. It lets us know that we're getting the right things out of this. 
And so uh, if you missed that, certainly funchurch.com has it. Now today we're going to get into the text itself as to the, the major work of the body, as to why, uh, you know, what does it really have to say. And the first John is really a series of two tests. Um, it was written to confront poor doctrine, right, dangerous doctrine that was being in the church. And, and John gives us this, this book or this letter to say, test your faith. That's why the Holy Spirit gave it to him, so we would know our faith is genuine. And so the book is really divided up into two major sections. The first two chapters are a test of fellowship. The second two chapters are a test of sonship, right? The first two, how close are we with God? Are we having that right kind of relationship with Him? Can we test? There are some practical things God tells us to do. The second one is we could test our salvation. Are we really in the kingdom? Are we really a child of God? And both of those make us uncomfortable as Christians, right? But here's the great thing is that God shows us how we can know And remember last week's memory verse really talked about that, so we would know that we are his children. So uh, today, uh, we're going to focus on fellowship. And so our memory verse today is 1 John 1, 7, and it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, I know this is kind of high thinking, right? Walking in the light doesn't mean turning on the lights when you walk into your house. It's walking in truth, right? Walking in purity. If we walk in the light as he, as Christ is in the light, then we have fellowship, and that's where the fellowship with one another comes in. So, with that, let's turn it into the Bible. First John, it's uh, chapter 1 we want to be in, and so that's going to be on page 855 if you have one of our Bibles. If, uh, if you, you need a Bible or you don't have one, you forgot yours today, we've got a lot of them in that little bookshelf over there, so you can be, um, please feel free to pick one of those up, because we're going to be in the Word a lot. And if you need a Bible, keep it, our gift to you. Uh, we want to make sure everyone has God's Word. All right, so um, here we're going to find that uh, we're going to start with the test of fellowship. Right? This is our relationship with God and with one another. And you'll notice that there are three very um, objective things that John points to to say, this is how I want you to test your fellowship with God. And these three things are obedience. That's a test that we can play. It's very practical when we can look into our lives. So are we obedient? The second one is a fellowship. Which are we connecting with other Christians? Right? Are we communing with one another? And the third one is truth. So obedience, fellowship, and truth are the three objective tests that John gives to us to say, are we, uh, is my faith legitimate? Is it real? Is it based upon right things? So the first one we look at is the test of obedience. And uh, so we read there in, from uh, verse, uh, basically verse 5, uh, John 5 to 2, 6, is that's what it talks about. And he introduces us uh, to us in these passages the concept of light, right? Light and dark, which are big themes in the book of John. And so we see that there is light, and that is truth, and that is righteousness, and there is darkness, which is wickedness. God is light, we find in these passages, and that Satan is the prince of darkness. And he says that we're supposed to walk in the light. That means that we're going to be living. Walking doesn't mean that just how you walk around. It's how we live our lives, are you living your life in obedience to God? That's really the, the test is there. So 1-7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, right? That's, that's a test of obedience. Are you following Jesus? Now, Jesus said, I, want, I came to make disciples, right? We're, we're Christ followers is who we are. And it's impossible for us to say that we are following Christ if we are not following Christ, Right? And I think that's what we, we see here is it says, uh, verse uh, um, uh, 3, it says, 
we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. That's an objective test. Now, I know there are a lot of people who are very nervous about this because they don't want to tease out any type of nuance or or think about their faith with any type of complexity. And they say, Aaron, we are saved by grace through faith, period. And if you add anything to that, you are diminishing Christ and what He has done. Absolutely not! Jesus called us to purity because He loves us. That's what He says. How we live demonstrates who we're following. And it's over and over and over again in Scripture. How we live matters. You are obeying somebody. Scripture says you're a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. You are obeying somebody and how you live demonstrates who you are following. And that demonstrates a lot about what your faith is in. Now, we're not talking about salvation. This is not sonship. There are disobedient children in the kingdom of God. But God calls us. He says, if your faith is real, he's calling us. He says, walk in the light. And when you're not walking in the light, if you're not following Jesus, and one of the things that you're going to notice in your life is that you're not going to have fellowship. It's just not going to happen. This is a call to purity. It's a call away from disobedience. The Christian life was not meant to be just an easy call. Hey, you know, do this for Jesus and then your life will be beautiful. Jesus says none of that. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Sacrifice yourself daily and follow me. You follow me, you're going to have suffering, but you're going to have a hope that overcomes it. Right? You're going to have a future that is far better than this broken world can give you. But it will be hard. It is a narrow path. It is a, it is a hard road. He says, count the cost and obey me. There are so many times in Scripture, and here is John who walked with Jesus, didn't he? We know, it says, that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And whoever, verse 4, says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Ouch. In fact, you know, John talks about there's four different liars in these passages. The first one is is the one that we find there. It says uh, that we're lying about our... uh, our nature. You know, it says that uh, we, we know him, but we don't keep his commands. We're liars, right? Well, I could say that actually the first one is fellowship. The first one saying that we love God, but not obeying him, that's lying. To say, God, I, I know you. I have fellowship with you. And to walk with Jesus, but then not to really walk with him and say, Jesus, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'll call you Savior, but I certainly will not treat you as Lord. That person is a liar is what it says in Scripture. They're lying to themselves. And God is not doing this, say, hey, you're a liar so that we can all point and, and, and shame that person. It's for you to look in, tr- like, in your life and are you following Jesus. Because if you are not obeying him, the Scripture and God says that you are lying to yourself. Stop living a lie and start living in the light. That's the invitation. There is a better way to live, but the first liar is we have to realize in our life is that first one called self-righteousness, right? Or, or just self-will or grace abuse, you name it. We want to say that we follow Jesus, but we want to do whatever we want. No, no, no. Jesus says, if you want to follow him, follow him. The second lie that we have there is, is our nature, saying that we don't have any sin. Look at verse 8. It says... Uh, it says, uh, I, uh, dear friends, I am a, it says, I am writing to you a new commandment, 
And its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is shining. And uh, there is a new commandment that we have. And we're supposed to live in this. And if you're not living in this new commandment, then are you really obeying Christ? Are you really following him? And I think part of it is to say in a Christian life to say, you know what, I'm a, I can do whatever I want. I can live my life selfishly. And we'll talk about what this new commandment is in a little bit, but there's this command that we're supposed to follow, and if we don't do it, if we just live our life selfishly, and yet we claim to be in Christ, then we're living at odds with who Jesus even called us to be and what he called us to do. There is a new way, and it's a command. And think about commands. You never command somebody to do something they're going to do naturally, do you? Right? The reason that they have speed limit signs is because people will go well beyond that, right? Dangerously. Right? There's, there are rules, there are laws, because we, we don't tell somebody, hey, make sure you're commanded to breathe, right? Because you just do it. We, we are commanded to do the things that we're not going to do naturally, to change our behavior so that we can act a better way. And there is a new way that God wants us to live, and if we are just ignoring that, then we are not living in that way. And so then we also find that's just our, our nature, but also our deeds. Uh, Actually, 1.10 is where I want it to be. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. If we claim, if we say that our deeds, we are not sinful. If you are sitting here today thinking that you're more sinful, or you're, that, or you're less sinful than other people. If you're saying you're more sinful, you might be right. If you're sitting there saying I'm less sinful, I, am, I have no sin. I am here, I am at church because I have cleaned up my life and I am perfect. Then it says in the word, you are a liar. The reality is that Christians all understand that we're not saved because of our perfection. That's where the grace comes in, right? That's where it says, my sonship has nothing to do with my deserving of it, right? Even when I am, I am unacceptable, God accepts me. And that's a great place to be, but there's a humility that comes with that. I think that sometimes in the church, we like to take messages like this and apply them to other people because we think we have everything together. I'm without sin. But look at that person in their life. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. If we want to be Christ's followers, we have to recognize that there's this liar that's inside of us that says, I'm better than you. And that has to die because that's pride. And when we come to the cross, we recognize that I am unworthy of, of anything a good from God. I mean, it just blows my mind that we receive anything of value in this life, anything good or happiness. We are an open rebellion against the God who created it. When people say, how could a good God allow there to be suffering? How could a good God allow there to be anything pleasurable to the people who, who rebel against him, who murder one another, take his laws and beat each other up over it? How can a good God allow any of us to receive anything other than the judgment we, ju- we justly deserve? We all deserve suffering. And I think part of this is to recognize this and to say, I am not, I can't walk into the throne room of God and demand anything. But there's a humility that must come in the heart of the believer that gives us the ability to have grace towards one another. I can love you because I've received love. I can forgive you because, man, I have been forgiven. And you know what? There are things that you may do and sins I might not understand, but you know what? God forgives and he can change and he can purify anybody. And he's done that to me. And there may be sins that I have committed that you have no idea about and you might not understand and you might be like, oh, 
You know what? But God can forgive and purify anybody. We don't have to condemn one another, but we do get to love one another. And so we have to be careful of that lie that says that our deeds are perfect. But also, the fourth lie comes to obedience, verses 4 through 6. And it says, uh, it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. So we have to follow Christ. We have to be aware of these lies, because living in a lie is certainly living in the darkness. We don't want to live in the darkness. We want to live in truth. And so we say, the people say they live in the light, but, it, uh, but uh, yet... Uh, they say they have live in the light, but they, they walk in darkness, right? They say, I'm, I'm living in the truth, and yet their lifestyle and everything that they do rejects that is, is a good sign for us, right, if we're doing that, that maybe my faith is not where it should be. See, fellowship is a matter of, of light and dark. And I don't think oftentimes we see that as Christians. We think, like, well, I'm going to go to church if I can get something. Right? I'm going to go to church if, if it feeds me. I'm going to go to church if uh, be part of the church if I like the people there. Right? I'm going to go to church if I feel that, you know, if I get this sense of love and belonging. That's not why we come to church. It's a matter of living in the light. See, one of the evidence of faith is that we begin to love one another. And here's the cool thing about love is it doesn't just happen just naturally. I mean, have you ever walked into a room and you're just like, hey, everybody here is my best friend? Right? They're all strangers then you're not going to say that. You're going to say, everybody here is a stranger, and there may be some weirdos amongst them, and so I'm going to keep my guard up until I get to figure out which ones those are, and then I'll get the ones I like. Right? That's, that's how we're wired to protect ourselves. But in the body of Christ, we are called to love one another because we're family. And that love takes relationship. It means we have to get together. That's why we call this a family room. We, we get together and one of the things that we do is we get to know one another, which is why you just can't show up and then sit and then leave. That's why we have life groups to help us to connect deeply with one another. It's why we serve together. One of the reasons is that we can care for one another. One of the reasons that we do prayer requests, that we can pray for one another, get to love one another. It takes time. And it's a matter of light and dark. Jesus did not come into this world so that he could create a bunch of independent you know, Christians that were just off, scattered about. He created a body, who you and I are. So, it's also a matter of life and death. You know, we say that, uh, that uh, fellowship is a matter of living in the light. But think about if you walked into a, uh, a, a, a campfire. I like campfires. Don't walk into a campfire. Walk around a campfire. Walking is bad. Walking around it, and you see all of the logs burning, and you're like, oh, that's great. They're all warm and all that kind of stuff, and they're helping each other burn right. And if you wanted to extinguish it, you take the hottest one out, even from the bottom, and you set it by itself, it goes out. The rest will still burn. To understand that in Christ, one of the temptations is to say, well, these other Christians are not pure enough, which, again, goes to that liar that I'm without sin, right? And to say, I just can't be around these people. And you separate yourself. Don't be surprised when you watch your faith grow cold. We need one another. We're called a body for a reason. And when every part of part's together and we're doing our part, the Scripture says that the whole body's growing healthy, filled with love. That's what we want. But I would say why is, it's, it's, it's a test of, or it's important to have uh, uh, that connection. Is a, fellowship is a, is a, is a part of, of love and is a part of, of uh, it's a part of, of growing together in Christ as a, as a matter of living in the light. Fellowship in and of itself is not what saves you, right? And so 
sometimes we'll find that in Christ, Christians don't get along. Can you imagine? You don't lose your salvation at that moment. It's not like Jesus said, well, you don't love that person. Now you're gone. But he does make it a high priority. He says, don't even worry about communion or offering or anything until you get that thing fixed. Because fellowship is that important. And what gives us the courage to be able to address those things is the fact that our salvation isn't at risk, but our fellowship certainly is. If I don't love people who are right in front of me, how can I claim that I love God whom I haven't seen? And so a true Christian, we have to recognize we need to follow Christ in fellowship. Now, we have this problem that all Christians sin, right? Fellowship is a matter of obedience. Being together is obeying Christ. You are here this morning primarily, hopefully, because you're obeying God. Jesus saved you, and this is something he wants for you to do, to be here, right? Hopefully, that's your main reason for being here. Hopefully, you get lots of other reasons to come, and you feel loved and all that stuff. But, but then we have this problem, and we say, okay, God, I want to obey you, but I sin. And, and of course, we don't want to be that liar that says, I don't sin. So what happens? Well, verses... Uh, Chapter uh, 2, verses 8 and 10, it says that I'm writing to you a new command. Truth is, uh, is uh, uh, writing to you a new commandment. Is truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing, true light is shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light yet hates his brother or sister is in darkness. Anyone who loves his, their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing to make them stumble. But anyone hates a brother and sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness and they do not know where they are going because the darkness is blinding them. And so we find that we recognize that we're going to walk and we, we, we don't do things perfectly, and yet we're still called to be together. And why do I get that before that? Uh, verse Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Dear children, I write this, you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, right? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. That's an amazing gift. That you don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to say, well, you know what? I'm too sinful to be part of a church, or the people in the church are too much hypocrites, right? That I can't be around them. You say, no, no, this is a matter of obedience. I can live together with other Christians because I know that Christ is actively working and forgiving us. Uh, 1 John 1 9 says, uh, which is one of our memory verses from a long time ago anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister, oh, sorry, uh, uh, still is in darkness. Don't be in darkness. Live in the light. In Christ. So, um, we need to follow Christ in this. Now, look at the apostles. They were called to live together in fellowship, right? I think this, we would say we're disciples of Jesus, and the apostles were disciples of Jesus who made disciples. I think they're a good example for us how to live. You had in the disciples, you had a guy that was a political revolutionary, right? Jesus. Like, he was, like, in our world, like, the, the hardcore, you know, you know, extremist that owns the guns and, and says, you know, down with the government and actually acted out on it, right? He was a militia man, right? You have him. On the other side, you have a tax collector who is actually raising funds for the Roman government. You don't get more polar opposite than these two. And in Christ, they found a common ground. They found love. They found fellowship. And if Christ can bring together such polar opposite type of people, if he can go above even beyond politics, then God can unify basically anybody, can't he? And that's part of being disciple. So how does Jesus then provide for the saints, our, our sins, right? We say Jesus, 
He saves us from our sins. I don't have to hate another because they're not perfect. And I know that I've sinned. And it says that Jesus does purify us. He's our advocate. How does he do that? Well, it's through his ministry we just read. He's advocating for us before the Father. You know what that means? He's our lawyer. That's what that means. It's the same word, by the way, that's applied to the Holy Spirit. I think that's kind of cool. It says that he's, he's a comforter. He helps us. Isn't it comforting to know that your lawyer is Jesus in heaven? Anytime you do something wrong and God says, guilty of sin, Jesus says, paid for. That's really good. That we don't, our salvation isn't at risk because we're imperfect. That's how his ministry works so well. Uh, he, we are saved by the penalty of sin by his death. Awesome. Romans speaks a lot about this, right? If you really wonder about this, go to Romans chapter 5, read it this week. You'll be amazed at what Christ has done for you to make sure that you are saved. That why we know Christ's sacrifice once and for all was sufficient and was accepted by God. And that's what gives Jesus the ability before the Father to be our advocate. That's why we don't have to worry about, I wonder how the judge is going to, to rule on this verdict. It's already been, it's already, the verdict's already, already come down. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved by grace through faith. You are saved. That's awesome. And, you know, we are saved by the penalty of our sin by Jesus' death, but we are also saved from the daily power of sin by Jesus' life. And it talks about that in Romans 5 as well. That, that Jesus didn't just come, that we could be set free from the pain and the penalty of sin, but also that we could receive a new nature, that we would no longer be slaves of sin that we could live a new way. And God then does something amazing for us as He gives us God Himself, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us, to do that work inside. Can you imagine if you were driving your car and you had the world's best mechanic with you at all times? Something breaks down, they get up, don't worry, boom, done, fixed. Right? You have the world's best soul mechanic in you, Christian. When we feel powerless with sin, and we feel that there are temptations that we just can't overcome, but I will tell you, God is in you, working through you, and He's changing you. And here are the fruits of that, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It talks about in Galatians, it says there's going to be love in your life. That you're going to start to be the kind of person that starts to care for others of being above yourself. And it's not going to be something that's forced, it's just going to start happening. And you're going to have joy. I mean, there are going to be things in life that might be hard, but you're going to find that there's a hope that overrides that. And you're going to have peace in your life. When when It doesn't make sense. When everything, the storm is raging, God is not going to give you peace because he navigates you around the storms or quiets the waters all the time. Sometimes what God does is he takes you right through the storm and shows you you're going to be fine. And so you're never afraid of any storm again. Peace. And you're going to find that you're going to be a type of person that's more patient. Less about your time frame and more about God's and saying in in your life it has this different kind of rhythm to it. And you get off of that big wheel, that rat race that we're all part of, right? And it wears everybody else down and kills them. But not you. The Holy Spirit works in your life. And you find that you can live according to what God has. And you find some things like contentment. You find ways that you can enjoy this world that God has made and the life, the gift that he has given even in the midst of its complexity and difficulties, and you will find that other people start to irritate you less because you have a greater capacity for love for them. You know, there's, there's gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are the, the, that He does to help us propel that, but these are just the fruits. This is just the evidence of God working in your life. That's how God begins. So it says, when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is what that's talking about. In the midst of of our brokenness, he helps grow us. But here's the thing. 
you can work against the work of the Holy Spirit. You can tell that mechanic, no, sit down. <laughs> you can, as he's twinkering, fixing stuff, you can go and break it all again right behind him. And it slows the progress. And how do we not slow the progress? Live in the light. <laughs> Don't work against him. God is doing great things. And so we know that, uh, that we have this advocate who speaks before the Father on our behalf. And his wounds testify that Christ died for us. I think it's amazing that in heaven there are scars. Right? And there should be. Our God is a God of, of uh, he's a God of, of, of uh, pillars and, and of, like, you uh, would stack up rocks and things so people could come back to and remember what God had done. He's a God of celebrations. He's, he orders us to party in Scripture. I think that's awesome. Why? Because some of those parties remind us of who God is and what he's done. He's a God that wants us to remember, and I think in heaven, every time that we see Christ is a great memorial to his goodness and his grace and his love and our security in his kingdom. His wounds testify, therefore, God must forgive us when we confess, and I think that's great. He's faithful and just. If God uh, caused you to go to hell because you sinned again as a Christian, then he would be violating his own, his own righteousness. It's like this. You go to McDonald's, you order a hamburger. The guy behind you says, I'll pay for it. You say, I accept that. You can pay for my hamburger. That guy behind the counter can't charge you for the hamburger. It would be unjust. He's already been paid. God has been paid for in full for the price of sin. That's awesome. And so he's faithful and just. He will always forgive us our sins. We confess them. Now, to confess means to say the same thing as if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's an amazing thing, uh, that we have to, to confess our sins before God. And when we do, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. There's an if there. Now, as Christians, it doesn't mean that I'm not forgiven or saved if I don't confess my sins. No, that's not what he's talking about. We're talking about fellowship in this section as well, right? Not salvation. But I'll tell you, you're going to walk around with a lot of guilt in your life. Have you ever done something really wrong to somebody you really love? You know, you messed up badly. I remember like one time I forgot Valentine's Day the first year that I was married to Amy and just didn't dawn on me, right? And uh, it was, she was really hurt, right? And at first I didn't handle it so well, right? I was like, what's your deal? I gave you a ring, <laughs> right? Clearly I love you, right? That wasn't the best way to handle that, <laughs> Right? And I didn't confess that. I didn't say the same thing about my sin as she did. Right? I said, well, you, okay, yeah, I forgot it. Big deal. That wasn't what she was saying. She was like, you forgot it. Big deal. Because it speaks more to her heart. And, I, and there was a separation and fellowship between my wife. Now, I wasn't not married anymore. I didn't lose relationship that way. But I did lose fellowship until I had a really good brother in Christ who was older and wiser than me. He came alongside and said, dude... You need to go back and you need to get flowers and chocolate and take her out to a nice dinner. And you need to make this right. And you need to put it on your calendar so every year you see it coming up, right? And when I said the same thing about my sin as she did, <laughs> there was reconciliation and there was forgiveness because my wife is a loving and kind, wonderful woman. You know, we had to say anything with God. Sin, we, when sin is in our life, we can't just be excusing it. It's not... God isn't looking for the excuse. God, the reason I am envious is because you don't give me enough good things or because they have better things. God, the reason that I have anger is because that person really deserves it. They're mean. And they've done awful things and they deserve my wrath. (laughs) 
And so I'm going to harbor hatred in my heart against them because I have the right to. You know, you think about your sin. God's not interested in, in, in the excuse. He says, just say the same thing about it as I do. It's wrong. I paid for it, right? You're not going to be condemned by it. Just agree with me that it's darkness. It's wrong. And that takes daily introspection, doesn't it? That's why I think Jesus, when he says, teach us how to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. To go into our life and to say, God, you know what? I think this sin is justified, but I know that you'd say it's not. So it's not. Help me. I say I pray that a lot. Usually when I'm behind somebody really slow in traffic. But there are a lot of other sins that I say that with, right? So sin is darkness. Confess it. Right? Fellowship depends on it. And it helps that we have a fellowship of Christians who all say the same thing about sin, right? We're not supposed to be here making it easy for one another to sin because sin kills us and it kills you. And if I love you enough, I say that's bad in your life and I love you enough. My brother or sister, I want you to be redeemed. Not so you feel bad, but so that you won't feel bad. So that you can receive grace and mercy in this place where we've all received grace and mercy. So if I see sin in your life, I should be the one coming not to shame you or to, to humiliate you, but oftentimes just in private coming alongside say, I love you so much and I see this going on. How can I help? We call darkness darkness, and we call light light. Faithful and just, he forgives our sins, cleanses us from all righteousness. Now, this is one of the things that Christians don't have to do. This is not saying that Christians have to do penance, right? Jesus paid for our sins. It means like you've done something wrong. You you confess it to God. He forgives you. You don't have to come back and do some certain acts of good in order to get back on his good side. You are on his good side. Right? Christians don't have to, to make sacrifices. Christ was the sacrifice. You don't have to go out and you sin and then you feel bad about it. And you say, well, I have to make a big offering to the church. Right? That's not how it works. God forgave you. Receive his grace. Right? Christians don't punish themselves. I've done something wrong and I feel guilty about it, so now I'm going to make my own life miserable because I know how bad I am. Jesus forgave you. Accept it. You want to be a follower of Jesus? He walked to the tomb, but he walked past it, right? He walked right out of it, and he lived a new life. He's given you a new life. Christians have to recognize that every sin has been taken care of at the cross. That's why it's so powerful. But just because our sins were forgiven at the cross doesn't mean that it's just free license just to live in darkness. That darkness hurts us, and it hurts the body that Christ died to save. Now, does this give us license to sin? Then, of course, verses 5 and 6 there uh, tell us absolutely not. It says, uh, but anyone who obeys his words, the love of God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must, must live as Jesus did. I love that must. Right? Just because we've been saying, Paul uh, talks about this in Romans, right? Just because God receives glory because he forgives us, does that mean that we should sin all the more because some Christians were saying that? Because if I do bad things and God forgives me, it makes him look really good because he's forgiving, then I'm going to make God look really good by being a real stinker. And I'm going to tell everybody, look how bad I can be and God still forgives me. And Paul answers it with the biggest no that the Greek world has. It's called meganoita. And it sounds like it's mega no. It's as big, as loud as it. No. And in your Bible, it might say like, forbid it. May it never be. And here this passage says, all right, we've been forgiven, right? Jesus forgives us. Okay, now what do I do? Well, now you need to live like Jesus lived. We need to follow Christ. That's what we get to do, but that's also what we must do to be his follower. 
So Jesus doesn't just forgive, he purifies, and that's wonderful. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just purify, but he empowers, right? He doesn't just tell you where to go. He says, here, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you a body of Christ to surround you. Now there's a better way of life. And when you don't do it perfectly, we're going to be here to forgive you. We're going to pick you up, but you need to keep following. And do we see that active in the lives of the apostles? Absolutely. Were the apostles perfect on day one? No, they were messed up. They were messed up on, on year three. But they were a lot closer to Christ on year three, weren't they? Were they perfect as they started the early church? No. They did a lot of great things, but they also missed the mark a few times. Paul even had to like take Peter aside and be like, man, you're missing it right here. And what did Peter do? He changed. You see, the life of a disciple is not a perfect walk, but it's, it's a walk in the right direction. And so we must be walking the right direction. We also must not use grace, the fact that my sonship is not based upon how perfect I live, as an excuse to not follow Jesus. Second test we have, after we get through obedience, we get to love. And I think it's important to notice the order there. How can you love if we're not really obeying Christ and loving one another? There's this new command. It talks about verse 7, right? A new command. I read it several times already. I'm writing you a new commandment. You wonder what that new commandment is? Well, Jesus... John was there when Jesus talked about this new commandment. In the Gospel of John, verse 13, Jesus said, A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Must. That's the way it is. It's the command. Because we weren't going to do it naturally, so it's a new way of doing it. You know, fellowship with God requires fellowship with His church. We must love one another. We're not here because we, just because we want to be, although I hope that you want to be, but also because we are obeying Christ. But in obeying Christ, how do we show up? Are you showing up here out of judgment or just out of obligation, just when I'm putting my time in for Jesus? Jesus didn't just put in his time for you. He loves you, right? He's advocating before the Father for you today. We must love one another. And we know how to love because we receive love from him. And so we must love the body that he loves, Walking the light requires us to walk in love, which means caring for each other more than we care for our own personal selves. That's how Jesus showed us what love is. And you know, this, old, this new command was actually an old command. It says it's also an old command in there. It says, and it comes from Leviticus, God the Father gave to Moses, says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the reason why I am the Lord. Not because you feel like it, not because it's a nice thing to do, but because God said, listen, Get along. And as parents, have you ever said that to your kids? Right? Don't say you're sorry. I'm sorry. No, mean it. Have you ever had that? Let's say it like you mean. Yeah, love one another. God wants to take us from being these selfish people. It's just about us. Say, you know, I actually care about you. Love one another. We're all members of God's family. So God says, love one another. That's a test of fellowship, right? And so in verse 12 to 14, we have this, and he says, there's a new family that's set up, and you read about it. He says, I'm writing you to your children, and he, then he talks about young men, and he talks about fathers, right? You see a progression of faith, don't you? Now, some commentators look at that and say, well, you know, maybe it's the, the children or the, the members of the body, that the, the deacons are the young men, and the elders are the, are the fathers, maybe. But even in that, don't you see a progression? Somebody doesn't just walk into the church and baptize and like, you're an elder, Right? Elder means old guy. That's what it means. 
right? And it doesn't mean that you're an old in the flesh, although sometimes you need to have those years to get there, but it means that you are mature in faith. That doesn't happen instantly. There's a maturity that goes on in the faith, and, and you'll notice it talks about as what is the progression, how are we supposed to grow in faith? Well, you'll see that all of God's children are forgiven if you read that section. It says, I write to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then he goes to the, to the guys that are more mature, and he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. Our doctrine, our theology, we get it. We start to know who God is and his very character and his nature. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. It's a change of life. We stop living for ourselves, and we start living for God's mission. I mean, that's a, that's a mark of maturity, isn't it? And we go back again, and, he, and he's, he's, one more time, he gives us, he says, I write to you, Dear children, because you know the Father. Isn't that amazing? Even the babiest Christian gets to know who God is. Gets to be swaddled up in, in God's loving arms. And you know Him in His grace. But we can't just stay there. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. It goes back to we know who God is and His character and His nature. And that motivates our living, doesn't it? And it says also, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. You have the word of God lives within you. And you have overcome the evil one. Listen to that. We're engaged in the mission, overcoming the evil one. Because we're powerful? No, because God is and he's in us. It's a new family. And you're part of this family. And so we're supposed to love one another in the midst of it. Even how he talks about his maturing in faith is in terms of family. It's a test of love. Are you in the family? And then he talks about the other way that the, we could love. There's another family that we're called from, and it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's a different kind of love. We have to shift our love. And how many people sacrifice they're what's best for themselves for what's best according to what the world says. Pretty much everybody. How many people die because they're workaholics or end up starving themselves to death because they have an unrealistic body expectation that the world says you have to make this mark, right? Or end up drinking themselves to death or doing drugs and, and, and dying for things because they can't have the, the things that the world says that they must. And so they end up trading their life for what the world says, you must have this version of happiness or this version of whatever it is. Too much of a, we, we love this world, but the world is just a temporary thing. The Christian understands that this world is passing away. A next one is coming. Let's live for the one that lasts. There was this great missionary who used to, he went down to, uh, to visit a, or to, to share the gospel with a people group that had never heard the gospel before. And uh, he and his family and a couple other families went down there, and they went and they, they studied these people for a long time, right? And then they made contact, and they flew their plane in there, and they made contact with these families, these people, and they were murdered. The men were. And, and before he was killed, the missionary who, who went down there, he said this. He says, he is a fool who clings to that which he can't hold to, <laughs> right? Uh, to, uh, or he's, he's a fool who, who clings to that which he can't hold on to. <laughs> And exchange is that which he can never lose. I think that's an amazing thing. Well, it was amazing that his wife ended up going back, his widow and his children went back in and ministered to that, that people and brought them to faith. You see, love compels us to live a whole different way and allows us to, to do things that this world makes no sense. But if you love the world, if you're just in this, for this world, 
you're going to get angry because the world's always going to rip you off. Always will rip you off. People will let you down. The world will let you down. Justice is not happening in this world. But God is a better way. And so he says, love God. And if you want to love, you want to be part of the family of the world, then you can't be also all in living in the family of God. We have to have a different culture in this family. We have to have different values, different ethics, different things that we build up. We're supposed to do that. We, we can't buy into this broken and satanic system any longer. We have to call it, agree with God, what it is, broken and satanic. And yet, we also, we need to, to not buy into this secular ethics and values. They don't come from God. But God has a different way. And so don't be surprised if the world says they hate you or calls you all kinds of awful things because of Christ. They did to him. But we live according to truth and we live in the light. So here's reasons not to uh, love the world. It says that the love of the Father, verse 15, isn't in that person, right? So stop loving the world because God's love isn't for that, right? Second reason it tells us that we are supposed to, to not give ourselves over into dark living. In fact, even it says that really clearly in verse 16. It says, for everyone in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. That we have to, if we live according to what this world says we should, we're going to be missing the mark. It's also short-sighted. Do you know that you are going to die? I mean, I hate to give you, like, good news today, but you're not going to have to live here forever, okay? This world is passing away, right? You, there's a day you're going to close your eyes in the flesh, and then you're going to get a new body. And the world that we're going to is fantastic. And although we don't know exactly what we're going to be like when, when, when Christ returns, we do know what we're going to be like Him, and it's going to be awesome, so don't live for this world. Don't be short-sighted. Love what God has. Now, the third test is the test of truth. Now, he talks about some things that make people uncomfortable, and that's the Antichrist, which I think makes sense. Nobody likes the Antichrist. We wouldn't think, but actually so many of us fear him and, and do love him. It says, uh, verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, there's the Antichrist. That's the figure at the end when Christ returns, and this is not what he's talking about. He says, you hear the Antichrist is coming, but he says, but even now, don't worry about the end one. We already have Antichrist here. And think about what Antichrist means. Antichrist. <laughs> And it says, who are the Antichrists? Well, we have uh, their apostate teachers that oppose the teachings of Jesus. And do we see that coming from the church? Are there people who used to be Christian leaders who have had somehow some enlightenment that allows them to think that this is no longer truth and that they have a better version of it? Don't listen to them. I don't care how charismatic they are. I don't care how, how clever they may sound or how good they may make you feel. They are not from God. And we are warned against them. They oppose the teachings of Christ. Second Peter talks about this too, because Peter cared about the church. And he says that they are false teachers. They are false prophets. He calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. They come to trick us. They genuinely believe oftentimes what they're teaching, which is tragic, because God has given us truth. And instead of walking in the light, they chose to walk in darkness. But then the part that makes them so evil is that they cause others to follow them. Beware. And so we said we need to identify the Antichrist. How do we identify the Antichrist so that way we don't fall into that? Because they can be tricky. Well, 
and says this in verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One. That's God. <laughs> and you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth and because no lie comes from the truth. And who is the liar? It's he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son all has the Father also. He gives us a test. And remember the doctrine that he was combating at the time where people saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that he was just a figment of God, or if he did come in the flesh, he couldn't be God. And he says that wrong teaching is Antichrist. But he teaches us, he says, you have to test the spirits, don't you? You have to test the teaching. If it is contradictory to the the Bible says, it is wrong. So reject it. Live in the truth. And if we have fellowship with one another, this fellowship needs to be based on truth. So one of the reasons, you go pick a church you go to, pick a church that says the Bible is true. Pick a church that says Jesus is the way of salvation. If you don't do that, then your fellowship is not in the light. It's not the kind of fellowship that God has called us to. We need to stay away from the cultists and the heretics and the apostates. Be careful. Be wary. And we have to judge, make sure that we are, are judging our own belief and system. Be looking at what do we believe. Are we believing true? Or are we given to counterfeit claims? Now, God counters the Antichrist by giving us the Holy Spirit and giving us truth. I think that's more than enough, right? I mean, is the devil any match for Jesus? No. Right? I get to talk about that on Good Friday. Really excited about that. But he says, no match. So, God has given us, God himself, the Holy Spirit in you, and he's given you the Bible. You have what it takes to be able to judge whether or not a teaching is true or false. That is awesome, isn't it? Even if I'm not there with you, you have these two gifts. Now, verse 27, where it talks about that you don't need anyone to teach you, right? It says here, uh, as for you... The anointing received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But his anointing teaches you about all things, as his anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught to remain in him. Some Christians read that and say, well, it means I don't need church. All of this passage has been about being part of the church. That's not what it means. Don't take it out of context. In fact, Ephesians 4.1, if we want to take Scripture in context, says Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. God built the church, Right? He, this is his idea. This does not mean that you don't need pastors and that you don't need to, you're right. That's not what that's talking about. So I think sometimes as Christians, we read this and then we say, and I certainly was there when I first became a Christian. I was younger and I said, well, I don't really need the church. I got this on myself. But that led me to some really, that's when, how Amy and I got into a really legalistic form of Christianity. It was awful. Don't read to say, well, God's giving me his Holy Spirit and he's giving me the word. Therefore, just I assume that I know better than my spiritual leaders. Because guess what? Your spiritual leaders have the Holy Spirit too, and they also have the Bible. Right? They have that gift as well. And don't just assume that your doctrine is perfect. Right? God's given me these things. I know all truth. God just taught me. No, that's not how it works. That's why the Bible was written, so it could teach us. Right? You don't just know things perfectly. That's why together that we need one another. So what is, what is this passage telling me then? If it's not saying that I don't need to have pastors or teachers or any type of spiritual authority, well, it's teaching me this, that you need to take responsibility for your spiritual health. Don't just believe something because I told you. If I tell you something that contradicts with Scripture, please come tell me. Let's discuss it. Maybe you misheard me. Maybe I'm wrong. And I would love to be corrected because I want to walk in the light. Right? Maybe... 
you are wrong, and you have wrong presuppositions, and together we can work through that. It's not an issue of who's right and wrong. It's the fact that we all want to walk in the light together. But you need to take responsibility for your spiritual faith. You are not going to get to stand before God in heaven and say, you know what, the reason I believed is because I followed him. Because what if I taught you something wrong? That's not going to be an excuse in heaven. God, why, you know, if, if I taught you that you need to pay penance or something like that, and I really convinced you of it, and you got to heaven, and then you missed grace entirely, you couldn't stand there and say, well, Aaron taught me what was wrong. God would say, I gave you the word, and I gave you my spirit. Take responsibility. That's why your daily prayer life and your daily reading is so important. You need to take hold of these things. I'm going to give you some help and guidance. The the pastors are going to pray for you. We're going to help, but you need to grow. And here's a cool thing. The Holy Spirit is in you and with you. He's going to help you with this. You're not on your own. So continue with him, right? We need to continue him. Pass the test of fellowship. In fact, verse 28 and 29 encourages us to do just that. It says, now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, you may be confident and unashamed at when he comes. And if you know what is righteous, and you know, uh, and if you know what, to, and if you know that he is righteous, uh, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Here's the thing: when Jesus comes back, don't you want to be happy? Doesn't don't you want that to be a good day? You know, have you ever been at work and you've been, you know, just doing an awesome job? You're like above and beyond, or you're at school or whatever, and you're like doing something awesome. And then, like your boss, your teacher, or your parents, something shows up, your authority, and they catch you doing something amazing. Isn't it an amazing feeling? Isn't it awesome? Have you ever been the other way? Right? You're at work, and you're kind of goofing off. Maybe you're not goofing off all the time, but that day, you're just kind of goofing off. You're not pulling your weight or whatever. You're not doing things right, and the boss comes over, and he looks over. He's like, how come you're surfing Facebook, right? <laughs> or doing whatever you're supposed not, to You're not doing the work. It's lousy. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we do know this. Jesus gave lots of parables on this. He says, be working. Be ready right? From having our lamps filled and standing there ready to being the vineyard workers who are out there just, you know, sweating in the day's sun, doing our job, do our work. And one of the things that God tells us to do is be in fellowship. When you come back, when Christ comes back, if he finds you in fellowship with other believers, loving one another, believing truth, aren't you going to be pretty confident on that day? You say, hey, here I am doing what you asked. And that is a great feeling. So pass the test. Then you won't have to give an account for why you weren't. And then we could be confident, unashamed. And that's really my hope for all of us, right? So what are our takeaways today? Well, I think that we find this. To enjoy fellowship with Christ, there are things that we must do. The first one is that we must obey God's word. That means we have to confess and repent and renew our our walk with the Lord pretty much daily. Sometimes it's more than once daily, right? Multiple times, depending on the day, right? But we have to obey God's word. And in order to obey God's word, we have to know God's word, don't we? So it begins. The second thing to have fellowship with Christ, we must love God's people. Christ is here amongst us. The Holy Spirit is here. This is his body. He is the head. How can you claim to love God if you don't love his body? So be part of it. Attend. Be part of the church, but don't just attend. Serve. Serve one another. Do your part. You are part of the body. You are not an appendix, right? You have something of value to do. But also sacrifice. Care for one another. Serve one another. If your church experience stops at just sitting down, then you need to have a better experience. And there's a better way to live, to live in fellowship. Also this, we need to believe God's truth. We need to believe it. That's why verses 1 through 4 are so crucial for us. That this is, 
This is a faith that is based upon historical reality. Eyewitness testimony and personal life change that is undeniable. So we need to believe God's true. And that means we've we got to pray. And when you pray, here's the thing. Don't just always talk to God. Sometimes listen. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who just talked to you the whole time? And they're like, good conversation. You're like, no. No, it wasn't. Sometimes God speaks to us through the word, and we read it, and then we pray back, and you have a conversation with him. Sometimes you should take time, you're praying to God, say, God, I, I just need to know what you want today. What do you want? And it's the hardest thing, because you feel stupid, because you're sitting there, like, listening to nothing. But sometimes he speaks. And I think also this, you've got you to gotta continue to serve, right? And that's that thing, that, just, that practice. You've got to get out and actually start taking God's way that he wants us to love and actually start doing it. It's amazing. Whether that's learning to say, God, thank you for what you're doing every day, whether it's uh, learning how to be generous, whether it's, uh, it's forgiving, practice what God tells you to do. Find one thing, one thing today that you could, how you could serve him. I think you'll be amazed. Start practicing walking in the light. You'll be amazed at how your fellowship with God grows so close and how that will naturally help you grow closer to other Christians. It is it's remarkable how God makes that work. All right, so how do we apply that into your life? Those are our takeaways, but applications uh, are as an entirely other thing. So if you take out your connection card, I've got some of those for you. On the back side of this, some next steps to apply those takeaways into your life. The first one is this, maybe you want to do, is to memorize First John 1, 7. What a powerful thing that is for us to be able to say to God, yep, I am a... I'm living with you for you. Take God's word and apply it into my life so that you can have that kind of fellowship. Maybe that's where you begin. Or maybe you want to do is read 1 John chapters 1 and 2. I just talked about them. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't get to cover in depth. Read it for yourself. The Holy Spirit's in you, with you. Read it. And as you do, ask yourself, what did I just read? Right? What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply to my life? Good stuff. Or how about this? Uh, I would ask everyone, pray for Easter. Seriously, there are people whose souls are in peril who live next door to us. Their eternities are, are at stake. And this is an opportunity to bring them in to love them, show them Christ's love, but also to share the gospel with them, to give them hope and truth. Pray for this. This is powerful. Please join me as we pray for Easter. Also, maybe what you need to do is you need to obey. Maybe that's where you're looking in your life and you're like, you know what? I've been a little bit uh, lax on my obedience. And I've been asking God to follow me and bless what I'm doing instead of me blessing his, what he's doing. Maybe for you, you say this week, there's something in my life I'm going to do, I'm going to try to obey. Right? This is what I need God's help with. Let me know and I'll be praying with you. Maybe what you need to do is to love. Maybe it's, it's that attitude to develop between you and God and you and, and, and other Christians. You say, I need to love other Christians. I need to tend, I need to serve, I need to sacrifice. I need to care for other Christians better. Or maybe for you is to believe. Maybe you're struggling right now with doubt. The bestest of Christians have struggled with doubt, right? But God changes us and transforms us. And maybe in the midst of this is saying, God, I'm going to trust and I'm going to trust your word. I'm going to put it to the test. I'm going to apply it in my life and I'm going to accept it. I'm going to believe it even in spite of my doubt. So I'm going to do this week. Regardless of what your commitment is, I ask you to let me know and so I can be praying for you this week. Um, also, um, if you would let me know if you have any other prayer requests, this is the time that you can write that down and, and know that you will be prayed for. And uh, I'll pray for you anyway. But if you let me know, I will pray for those specific things. And God does. He's answered some really just amazing and amazing ways these last year. So please let us pray for you. If you have another commitment to make, you can write that down. And here in a second, we're going to take our offering. Uh, please take your commitments as well as your tithes and your offerings and put them in the offering basket as they're passed. 
Um, but first, let's pray for them all as, uh, um, and as we prepare to take the offering. Father God, we are grateful that you are good and that you're loving and that you're kind, that you didn't give us what we deserve. Father, the fact that there is any pleasure in this world whatsoever, and we're in rebellion against you, God, it just shows how good and kind that you are. You, you even cause it to rain on the wicked as well as the righteous. That, that uh, your desire is, is not for people to be lost in sin or to be lost in brokenness, not to face your wrath, and that's why you came to take your wrath, so that we could have justice and forgiveness at the same time. And God, it's, it's amazing to see your heart. When we say you're good, it's not just that you're good when our lives are good. You're good all of the time and that you can redeem this broken world and these broken lives. So help us as a church, Father, to live in, in, in relationship, a fellowship with you and with one another in a way that honors you, that helps us grow closer together as a body. God, we've made commitments today. Help us to keep those, not out of, out of legalism, but, Father, out of obedience, out of, out of just wanting to have a closer walk with you. And, Father, we also pray for our tithes and our offerings, our gifts, Lord. Take them, please. Uh, signs of our love and our dependence on you. Please grow your kingdom in us and through us, Father. Lord, you receive the glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.